0: Hello.
1: Jee, alaikum I'm well, how are you?
0: where are you? OK, just give me a second. alaikum. Good morning, good afternoon, good evening, depending on where you are. In the world of Zoom, we can be everywhere to do this webinar or any webinar. This has been, been the only bright side of COVID, discovering Zoom, which I must confess was our fault that we never discovered it before. Anyways, let us begin. Uh, We've got a great speaker today on a a brand new book on Pakistan. Dr. Shandana Mahmood, who is now at the University of Sussex, has written a book called Crafty Oligarchs, Savvy Voters, Democracy Under Inequality in Rural Pakistan. What a great title. I mean, you know, some titles you always wish that you had thought of a... Clever title like that, What a wonderful title. So Shandana, we're looking forward to your book. This is a Pakistan book launch for Shandana's book. And I think I'm really looking forward to it. It's, it's intriguing. I read a bit of it, but it's a, a very intriguing book. But any case, I want to learn more about it directly from the author. Uh, we've also got some great discussions for this. So have got Dr. Adil Malik, professor at Oxford, um, young Pakistan economist who's doing very well. He has agreed to be a discussant. We've got Hassan Javed from LUMS. He's also a discussant. Then we've got Mahmood Khalid and Lubna Hassan from PID. So we've got an excellent lineup. And uh, um, I will not stay, stand in the middle. I'll just, just stand by and listen now. So Shandana, over to you. Please present your book.
1: Thank you for that introduction, The It's Shandana mumant
0: Oh, sorry. <laughs> That's sorry, misspelt. Oh, sorry, no, no, it's spelled correctly. Misread. I apologize. I apologize. Shandana. Hmm.
1: many versions with which people read that name, but that's fine. Thank you so much for this invitation. It's um, I'm very excited to be here today. And um, I'm always very excited to be able to take this um, book, to be able to speak about this book in Pakistan. I think that is the audience that I really want to be able to engage on um, about this book, about the findings, about what it says um, to you about the state of democracy in Pakistan. That's essentially the reason why I got into writing about this subject. And it is my main um, area of study. So I'm very, very excited about um, being able to speak to everyone today, and especially about the discussants. Um, I know two of them well. I know Hassan extremely well. Hassan was closely associated with the research that went into writing this book, and I remain Hugely grateful for his um, support through this. Um, So I'm going to go straight into a presentation. I will present some slides and if there's any issues with being able to follow the transition of the slides or with the audio, please do just put on one of your mics and let me know that there's an issue. I'm going to keep that as um, quick as possible because I do really want to hear from the discussants and I would um, really enjoy getting into some questions and answers on this. Um, to, to know what people think of its findings. Uh, but I do want to set out a few of the methods that we followed for this as well as what we found in the process. So, um, may, um, presentation start and then in about 25, 30 minutes, we should be able to um, get to the main um, discussion and to the discussion. So I'm going to share my screen now and hopefully everybody, I would really appreciate it if as soon as um, the presentation is up, if you can just tell me that- You can it, see it. It's, it's fine. Sibyl? Yep, it's fine. Excellent. I'm just going to reduce the camera windows here and that's it. Okay, so um, as, as Nadim's already introduced, uh, the title of the book, Crafty Oligarch, Savvy Voters and the Reason for writing um, this book, really was to try and understand the Pakistani voter in a little bit more detail. I'm a scholar of democracy, but I always say that I'm not interested in political parties or personalities. I'm much more interested in voters and what voters are doing and what they're thinking and why they vote as they do. And that's not just limited to Pakistan, even though Pakistan is my main. Um, Focus of research—that is where I do most of my research—but I'm interested in this question around the world now: is what are thinking? And um, we're seeing various instances of it everywhere. We've seen very dramatic instances in the U.S. in the country where I'm sitting right now. We've seen voters vote for Brexit. Um, There's a number of other examples around. So for me, this major area of interest is voting behavior. And trying to understand why voters vote as they do, in the case of Pakistan, uh, my main uh, the the reason why I wanted to write this book was to really know. Uh, to figure out what is it that we understand about Pakistani voters. That question applies to rural voters in the case of this book. But my more recent work, my current work is also asking, what is it that we know about urban voters in Pakistan and how do they uh, behave? And what do we know about women voters? And these are both questions I've taken up quite seriously in uh, recent years with um, my co-authors. And we're finding very surprising things about all of these that go against the sort of broader ideas that we have about them. So no matter which category we think about, a lot of what we're finding is not what we usually read about, and I'm happy to get into questions on urban voters and women voters um, later. But for now, of course, the question is on rural voters. And um, my question is, what do we know about them? And why do we not know more? And what is it that we've been finding out? And um, the reason why I think this is a very major question is because, um, well, there's people who who counter this um, in some ways, but I think no matter which way we look at it, the rural voters still possibly are voting um, majority. And um, the way, and and given the sort of consolidation, um, sort of signs of consolidation of democracy in Pakistan means that we are becoming more and more concerned about what this particular group must then be thinking. Mm-hmm. And especially in central Punjab, which we know has such importance for parliamentary democracy in Pakistan, Um, forms a very large part of the electorate and a very dominant part of the um, influential part of the electorate, then obviously the rural voters that sit there are very important. And uh, it is trying to then understand what is the nature um, and um, creation, I mean, mean, how are uh, political constituencies created and maintained um, in these areas? So that's essentially the question I'm asking. Uh, Why do the rural poor vote as they do? And a very large part of what we want to get into here is to even try and understand how to see, observe, measure voting behavior in rural Pakistan and how do we understand it? And going by most of the literature, there's essentially two concepts that I want to talk about very early on and that I'm going to keep coming back to. And these are concepts that have been used to measure democracy over um, its history. Um, One is contestation and the other is inclusion. So level of competition and the extent to which democratic ideals and practices extend to everyone um, in a country. And most of the literature on Pakistan, not all of it, but most of it will tell you that voters in r- rural voters are very constrained, both in terms of con- ability to contest in elections, especially as leaders, and um, in terms of inclusion um, because of uh, socioeconomic inequality, and that this limits their agency, their bargaining power and their agency in electoral politics. So given this, how then does contestation and inclusion work in rural Pakistan and how do we um, observe it? The thing that we want to establish in that sense, uh, um, to that end, is um, what is the level of inequality? And there's just a few stats that I want to be able to point out on this slide. The first one here is um, the, the Gini coefficient. So this these are um, about Figures that are now about twenty years old, but um, there have been changes since then. But by any measure, this is an incredibly high Gini coefficient for land. This is the land Gini coefficient.
0: No, no. Which slide are you on? Sorry, I think it hasn't moved. Yeah, it doesn't
1: move. Try, try. Slide is not moving. Sorry, um, is this the slide that everyone is seeing? It starts with at a minimum. No,
0: we are on. What do we know about the Pakistani border?
1: Okay. Um, I'm going to press escape and try and move. I'm sorry, but everything seems absolutely stuck right now. I'm going to stop sharing for a second.
0: Try is leave the the, uh, Zoom and come back.
1: Okay, let's try that one. Sorry, everyone. I'm going to be right back very quickly. Okay, hopefully that will continue to move. So let me start from that. So I've already said that the two main concepts mm-hmm. that I'm looking at here that are important to this study are the concepts of contestation and inclusion. And that's essentially what we're trying to measure. And the first thing that we want to be able to look at in this case is equality in Pakistan. Is everyone on the slide with yep. a few tables now?
0: Now we got the table, yeah.
1: Okay. Mm-hmm. So out of out of these many um, different tables, what I wanted to just sort of establish is that the book is really about um, democracy working under extreme levels of inequality. And the inequality that I want you to focus on in in, um, these slides is um, the one up here that the arrow's pointing at right now, which is the land genie coefficient, which is incredibly high for both Pakistan and Punjab. The table after that, essentially, what I'd like you to pick pick out is that Almost um, 89% of owners in Pakistan own about 50% of the land, and then there's about 11% of the others that own the other 50%. And that's um, closely reflected, in fact, slightly worse in Punjab. After that are two slides that are relevant to the case study villages where we worked. And in that, the land genie coefficients, there's a line underlining the uh, genie for land in the six case study villages where this book is based. And that's incredibly high levels of land genie, um, um, of land inequality there as well. Hmm. And that it still um, um, sort of works very closely, it's closely correlated with caste. And if you look at this, this is one village of the six divided by its various baradari groups or caste groups. And this, um, and if you look at it, um, we've divided, we always sort of worked with four um, categories of um, um, castes, comms, and within that you would have multiple baradaris. And, you you notice that if you look at the percentages, which is percentage of that com group that owns land. So if you're a Malik, which is slightly different, these are the people who were given land um, during colonial um, times, um, 100% of that group is land-owning, and as you go down the caste hierarchy, and this very much is a hierarchy, um, the percentage of land-owning um, decreases and that of being landless increases. So what I'd like to establish here is the level of land inequality under which electoral contestation and electoral inclusion is being discussed. Um, my main thesis within the book is essentially dealing with this with 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 this political institution it's the village vote block what we call dharas in Punjab Mm. and it's essentially trying to understand what happens inside dharas because the thesis is um, my argument is that it is this that determines the, le- the the nature of political engagement, the extent of bargaining power that voters have, as well as the level of political competition within a village. So uh, within each vote block, and there's three depicted in this diagram, there are clearly identifiable leaders. Uh, voters belong to areas <sighs> that they're usually able to identify. Um, and, uh, the relationship that exists between leaders and voters is, Midhara leaders and voters, is what determines bargaining power. And more than interaction with external actors, it is the interaction with internal actors through these dharas that determines what kind of bargaining and negotiation power voters have. And it is what happens across these dharas, between them, that determines levels of local political competition. And my main argument is that the dhara that we now observe in rural Punjab is essentially working under pressure from two very different kinds of forces. One is socioeconomic inequality that works on it, which I've just described, which works both in terms of land inequality, but also social hierarchical inequality, which is based around comms and, um, and social inequality that comes from that dynamic. And at the same time is now democratization, working on it from through higher tier electoral competition. And my contention in the book is that these are two opposing forces. And we want to see what's happening with the village dhara, given that they still exist within a context of inequality But they are now facing electoral pressure from from national and provincial politics and also from local politics Um, at the time when this research was done. They were active local governments. And what is it that we then see um, as a result of this to be able to conceptualize this the really important part for us and the really difficult part of the research really was When do we know that we're seeing contestation? And when do we know that we're seeing inclusion? And what does that look like from the textbooks and away from the other countries where these concepts have been defined? And when we bring them to rural Punjab, what happens to these concepts? And how are they to be measured? And how are they to be conceptualized? So... Um, I just wanted to present to you the four measures that I use in what I call an index of political engagement. And um, the four measures are, are in the orange boxes here. Mm. Two of them relate to contestation, which is political competition, which is the number and the vote share of each dhara. The independence of poorer groups in the village, which is if you are from a lower bar- um, com group, do you have your own dharas? Have you managed to do that? Do you have um, a way of remaining independent of the dharas of the landlord? Or are all of these groups entirely subsumed uh, within the larger dharas? And then there are two measures of inclusion. One one is on what basis are voters recruited into the dharas? And then what is the... um, type of decision making and the participation of different villagers within these uh within these groups uh, within these dharas and i just wanted to just quickly present that these are very contextualized measures for each one that we did a, fair, um, a lot of qualitative a work within each village to be able to figure out what's a sensible um, measure and what's a sensible way of making sense of all of these measures. So um, this gives us a scoring system, which I call the index of political engagement and which I use later in the measures. So that's one measure I'd like you to keep in mind, which is these measures of contestation and inclusion. And the other one is um, this typology of rural voters on which a lot of the work is then dependent. And I will present my findings in terms of this typology of the rural Punjabi voter. And um, it's, it's essentially to say that there is, it's very difficult to have these large sort of ideas about Pakistani voters when we start thinking about the fact that in any given village, you should be able to identify these four types of voters. And the difference Differences between them are, are along three dimensions. One is the type of tie that they have with the leader of the dhara. Um, is there any autonomy? Is there more autonomy or less autonomy? within that which is on your left axis and then on the top is the type of linkage that you have with the dhara leader because within each type of so, whether it's a socioeconomic tie or a political tie you can have a vertical linkage or a horizontal linkage and the horizontal linkage is something I, I, I um, try and measure to try and see which kinds of villages or for which kinds of groups can you see more of a horizontal linkage um, than a, than a Vertical linkage. And then the third dimension, which we get from these typologies, is that I think and I argue that the bargaining power of these voters then changes based on these dimensions. So you have different kinds of bargaining voter um, power, depending on whether you're a dependent voter, um, the part um, um, somebody I, I call it, um, a, them a kin, but it's essentially somebody who's voting on the basis of adri or. Ties um, and clients and peers. So peers are people who who have equal ties and political ties, and you know can identify as neighbors or part of the same kind of occupation group, or on the basis of political um, affiliation, political, following the same political party. So this is this is quite central to the arguments of the book is this typology and the fact that we see these four types of voters within villages. So that's sort of how. I've conceptualized the work and the findings are presented based on these concepts. Um, The methods, I'll run you through that very quickly. The main study objective was to understand the impact of inequality on the politics of the rural poor within the context of democratization. So what you want to be able to do is to be able to vary inequality, but to be able to hold um, other things constant. So, our way of holding that stuff constant was to work in a single district. But the choice of district, which is Sergoda in this case, is a really interesting one um, because of the fact that Sergoda really works like a quite beautiful natural laboratory setting, because in Sergoda, colonial government endowed um, two different types of grants that were that were relatively, that were more equal or unequal. We, um, we, we, we labeled them proprietary villages and crown villages. In our regular um, terminology, these would be zamidari, patidari, or bhaichara villages that fall into proprietary. Um, and then chucks. Um, uh, that fall into crown villages, which is part of the canal colony expansion that happened slightly later. And Sergoda has both of these types of villages. So in the same district, it allowed us to be able to pick a sample um, that included both proprietary and crown villages. Proprietary because rights of proprietorship were given to either single f- um, to a single person or families, or even Baradri groups in the case of Bhai Chara villages um, quite often. And so, but these were full proprietary um, rights in crown villages. They remained lessees of the state, tenants of the state for for um, until 1941, and this made a real difference to the level of social authority that a landowner could actually exercise. And that idea is also central to to some of the findings I'm going to present. So um, our study sample reflected the distribution of these villages, and obviously, to understand the distribution, it means we were we, we mapped out all of the villages in in, um, Sergoda through colonial um, archives. Um, Within this, I also picked case study villages. These are the six cases and they were each picked to reflect variation. Um, They're from proprietary and crown, but within each, they are either more equally, land is either more equally or unequally distributed. And we think it makes a real difference to whether or not um, you're close to a city or a small town or the expanding towns of Punjab because then that means that you have had access to different forms of employment and that's an important dimension. So we also were concerned in our case selection with making sure that we knew what the distance of the village is from a city. So this is the selection process for the six case villages in which I spent a lot of time and where I worked this is uh, uh, the, the strategy that we followed. We did census surveys, and that's how we know the genie um, and the land distribution figures. So in each village, we did a full census. Um, I keep saying we because the analysis in the book is mine, but a lot of this work was done with a large group of people based at Lums, And uh, so I always make sure that I use we when I'm referring to all of the work that's gone into this. Um, so because of this, um, uh, we, we did census surveys. We did surveys in the village, we did key respondent interviews, constantly looking for different kinds of information or triangulating information across them. Uh, We used a mix of methods. The Chapter 3, which a lot of people seem to have enjoyed in the book, is a story of a village called Sahiwal, which was studied in the 1960s by Sahir Ahmed and then by Shainaz Rouse in the 1980s, and we went back to it in 2000s. And those past studies allow me to be able to do a longitudinal study, looking at the changes that have occurred in this one village over time, based on changes that were happening at the national or regional level. Um, so that's, that's a longitudinal analysis in there. Then there is a control comparison across six villages, um, uh, which is uh, using different kinds of methods. There's a quantitative analysis that we used across 35 villages and all the households. And as I mentioned, archival work that gave us a sense of what, how these villages were originally settled and what was the distribution of land in these villages at the time of colonial rule um, before independence. So, uh, and this gives us the following parameters. So this book is based on the study of one district, six case villages, 38 survey villages, um, and 78 dharas that were studied in in quite a bit of detail. The elections that were covered are the the national elections of 97, 2002, 2008, and 2013. Um, Fieldwork happened around these from 2006 to 2013 for, for for two very sort of strenuous years from 2006 to 2008. And then actually Hassan and I went back for a bit of time in 2013 to do some qualitative work. And there's, there's a bit of that um, in the book as well. And then, um, so essentially this all of this comes together to give us a, a sort of the interaction between voters and leaders. So those are the methods. And now I'm just going to present the findings, um, you know the concepts, you know the methods we used, and I'm now just going to present the findings that um, that, that I've managed to get out of this. Essentially, um, the the big finding of the book the, the sort of where I you know um, the numbers to me really speak very ra- loudly is this typology that I presented between clients, kin, dependence, and bears and at the time that we were doing this work a lot of us talked at the in the sense of uh, dependency the dependency of rural voters and that as you'll see from this table was fairly um, low. Um, defined as a dependence on the landlord or relationships that involve violence or sanctions from the village head for not behaving in certain ways within dharas for not voting in the way that they would have wanted you to. And that's fairly limited. And where a lot of this relationship really rests, where a lot of political engagement is happening, is between um, clientelistic relationships. Um, So I would classify 35% as clients based on relationships of service delivery. There Delivery focused. And then this large category of what I label kin, uh, which is something we usually refer to as Baradari politics. But there's a very interesting concept here of the Baradari alliance, which is essentially something that the more we studied it, the more we realized looks much more like collective action than it does of me needing to vote entirely with my own type and with my own group. Um, so if we are to ask the question of what mobilizes voters... Anna, quick in-
0: clarification, what is patron-client service delivery work? Can you just clarify that? So
1: this, is, uh, my, this is the person who will allow, um, uh, get me access to goods. So this is the person who's going to bring the road, the vet hospital, the Nalis... Um, Soling, very popular is Nali's and Soling. So street paving and sanitation drains. And this is the person who has links in the provincial bureaucracy or with politicians and is going to be able to bring that to us. So if we give him the leader of the Dara our votes, then we get services back. So that's, this is patron client in, in um, defined like that. Um, so if we ask the question of mobilization, what mobilizes voters um, in rural Punjab, then what I contend is that the perspective matters a lot. right? So if you look at Kin, it's about 51%. What's happening here is small groups and a village in these areas can have Baradri groups that number from nine to up to 55. In our sample of 38 villages, there's from nine to 55 Baradri groups in any single village. All of those small groups coming together to decide to create an alliance and then use the increased numbers to speak to the dhara leader in terms of how many votes we have and what is it that you can bring to us for us giving you these votes. If you look at that from the point of view of the landlord, many of whom we spoke to, so we've spoken to almost all of these 78 dhara leaders, this to them looks like clientelism. And if you look at it from the top, it's 68% clientelism, it's 35% of clients and then 33% who are creating Baradri alliances, but essentially linking to you because of clientelism. But if you look at it from the bottom, it's essentially voters that are engaging in collective strategies for trying to get goods and services where the state isn't delivering based on universal delivery. And so that kind of, that changes this to um you know the the concept changes there very much it's it's viewed from below, it doesn't look like clientelism, it really looks like collective action and collective strategies for access in that case. Um, So this is, these are the numbers on the typology that I'd presented. And here's a little bit of sort of getting into what makes the real difference between what kinds of villages would we see more of one kind than in the other. And if I present the numbers here on my um, index of um, sort of political engagement that I would introduced right at the beginning, if you just run down the last two columns where I present the full index score, so each one of those aspects, the four uh, components of the index was scored, which I'd shown you just slightly earlier. Proprietary villages consistently score lower than the full sample, the average, than crown villages. So it seems that there's some difference that is made by the fact of being a chuck. Rather than a Zamidari, Pattidari, or a Bhaichara village, collectively the, prop- the proprietary villages. And that's sort of borne out by the larger quantitative analysis is that crown estates record higher, um, um, the, the higher likelihood of having horizontal linkages, which we cl- um, classified in the typology as relationships of kinship or peers, than vertical linkages, which is relationships of dependence or clientelism. And the same result comes through uh, when you look at the nature of political engagement. So political, the type of political competition or not lowest groups are independent and the extent of deliberative decision-making on which we don't see much of a difference. But on the other dimensions, if you live in a chuck, um, then Your agency is um, greater. Your bargaining power seems to be better. There is greater political competition. There is greater independence of of, um, lower caste uh, voters. Um, And it seems that there's a real difference um, that is impacted by the force of history and by the force of the original land settlement patterns that happened here. So essentially what it's saying to us is that inequality does make a difference. Those in proprietary villages, have, uh, pra- there's democratic practice in proprietary villages is qualitatively significantly different from democratic practice in chucks in crown villages so democracy works better is more inclusive there's greater contestation where land and social structural inequality is lower but in terms of if we, if we separate out contestation and inclusion, and this really is the impact of practicing democracy under conditions of inequality we find that on inclusion most villages do well but it is on exc- uh, it's on contestation villages and uh, that crown villages behave much better than proprietary that's where we see the real difference and what it says to me in plain language is that because of electoral politics Most vote leaders, most dhara leaders need as many votes as possible, and so inclusion is not a problem for them. They will bring in uh, people, they will speak the language, the the language of negotiation and of inclusion, but it is on contestation, on being able to create your own vote block, on being able to create your own politics, on being able to lead these dharas, that's where you see a real limitation and the sort of inequality you see in rural Punjab, that's where it's having a difference. That's where it's making a difference is that the leadership of those vote blocks hasn't changed. It still remains with the original proprietary bodies of these villages, but what happens inside the vote block has changed. The negotiation is different. And my colleagues, um, uh, based at Lums, have also found that this has long-term um, developmental outcomes as well. So they've done a long-run Um, comparison between crown and proprietary villages and found that living in a proprietary village means lower literacy rates and lower public good provision. And this is especially important for discretionary public goods where politicians get to decide what goes where. And that over a hundred year period, there is a very significant difference between proprietary and crown villages. So that inequality really does matter. This I'm I'm going to end fairly soon after this, but this to me is one of the most powerful graphs um, in uh, results in the book. If you move up the um, column on the f- uh, on the extreme left, which is horizontal linkages, as you go from the lowest Baradri, and the 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 com group that is dropped in this, that's not visible here, is the lowest com group, which uh, which we um, are called Muslim Sheikh. Compared to them every group has higher uh, has a higher chance of having horizontal rather than vertical linkages of dependency and clientelism. But if you look at the coefficients, they increase steadily as you go up the caste hierarchy. It's a very neat increase in the coefficients from the Kami group to the Zamidar to the VPB is the original Maliks to whom land was given is the village proprietary body. And um, it's it's a sort of really neat and significant difference based on social inequality. So it's and the effect of land, which is the last one land inequality that has a much lower coefficient. It's a significant relationship, but with a much lower coefficient um, than, than what social inequality does. So my contention in the book as well is land is a very necessary factor. Land inequality is an important factor, but it is not sufficient on its own. What it really works with even in villages where we can hold that constant. So two of my case villages, Tivanabad and Chakwan, these are all um, sort of pseudonyms for these villages. Um, In all of these, you can hold the genie constant But the score on the index of political engagement is significantly different. And the difference between them is that social hierarchy, the social authority that landlords are able to accumulate over time because of having ownership rights over land, as opposed to um, chucks where they did not have these ownership rights. And all that I'm showing in the final table um, at the bottom is the fact that um, using social network analysis, we essentially asked how central Chaudhrys in Chucks and landlords in proprietary villages are to the relation uh, to to um, these various networks which are listed um, in this in this last table. So, if we look at networks um, around elections, around thana Kacheri work, around sanitation and street paving, Chaudhrys uh, in in um, the Chugs share a lot more power with emerging. Uh, vote block leaders than do the large landlords of the Tivana variety um, that still exist in proprietary villages. And there's a real diffusion of of power um, between these. Um, In the book, and I won't get into too much detail, but this is certainly where I make my argument around the fact that there are real changes to be seen, are multiple stories, um, especially chapter five, Um, in which there are all sorts of stories of the extent to which voters and emerging vote block leaders are now countering the power of landlords. And all of the power, Mm -hmm. all of the sector agency that you you, um, can read about is because of the power of electoral politics and the extent to which it ends up changing the relationship and places extra requirements of inclusion on landlords. And so there's stories of landlords having to change um, their support for candidates, of emerging intermediaries of um, Kami and Muslim Sheikh leaders coming out and forming their own vote blocks Um, an entire vote block of women that want to vote for the PPP because of BISP (laughs) Um, there's examples of that and then of course is the more usual story of voters even in (coughs) lower categories who will keep landlords guessing to the last minute getting as many services (coughs) as possible before revealing who it is that they're going to vote for My final contention on all of this is that it all looks like this power is entrenched, but we know from the politics of the 70s at the village level, not necessarily the national level, um, that change can be very rapid. And that a lot of the politics that we're seeing is essentially the personalization of politics that happened through the 1980s and 1990s, but that we've seen a very different form of politics take hold in rural Punjab, especially very rapidly in, 1970, in the 1970s. But we have, um, information on that. We have evidence on that as well from watching what happened when local governments um, came to these parts in the 2001 and 2005 elections. So, here are three very quick, final uh, diagrams um, social network diagrams. What I want you to pick out of this one is this is us asking villagers um, who they would contact, um, who they make their decision for voting for an MA with, right? So, if you are going to make a decision to vote for an MA, and who determines that um, decision for you. And the big red dot in the center is the big landlord. And that, this is the, this person's centrality. Most of them named him. And then all the other little red dots in the little network that you see in the center are all his munshis. Right, so it's an extension of his own network, essentially. So when it comes to choosing the MNA in this incredibly unequal proprietary village, they're all naming the landlord. Then in the same village at the same time, we ask them, who would you make that decision with if you were voting for the Union Nazim? And again, you'll see that Tivana is still quite central up in the right and loads of votes again for his network of Munshis as well. And then there's Ishfaq on the left, in the lower left corner. And he's managing to get quite uh, some centrality in this diagram. And interestingly, this is the candidate for Union Nazim. And this is the person who won uh, in opposition to Tivana, he, he um, Tivana's candidate Tivana was not standing for this election. In opposition to Tivana's candidate, Ishfaq actually won. So it makes sense to be able to see a little dot emerging for Ishfaq, even though even here though, the most of the power rests around Tivana and his munshis. In the same village. At the same time, we were now doing this one year after the election of 2005. So Ishfaq has now become the union Nazim. We asked the question of who would you go to to ask about paving your village streets? And it's all around him. And in your little red dot over there is Tivana. And this is because Ishfaq after becoming Union Nazim had actually managed a seat on the the Tehsil Council where decisions around um, the funding for street paving used to be made. So my contention here is that with the coming of formal politics, things in these villages changed quite rapidly. And that's something that we could see from our evidence over here. Um, And we could see fairly um, quickly if we were to continue with this form of politics, especially local government form of politics. But that that I think is another squandered opportunity at this point in, in, in Pakistan at this um, right now. So I'll stop there. And I'm really looking forward to hearing from the discussions.
0: Thank you, Shandana. I think perhaps you put your finger on it. This is why the, uh, the um, uh, landlords are. The owners, the chucks, etc., don't want local politics. They keep going against local politics, and the army keeps bringing in. It's a very interesting dynamic. But we'll get to that in the discussion. Adil, can you please come in and, uh, you know, make your thoughts, your comments in the book. It's a great book. I found very interesting. But let's see what you have to say now. Go ahead. Oh,
2: Adil Malek okay. from Oxford. Switch on your mic, please. G. All right. Okay. Thank you very much uh, for this opportunity and hello and welcome to everyone, Uh, Shandana, uh, Hassan Javed, Mm. I could see Dr. Alia Khan, uh, another team and others. Mm. Um, What I'm going to do is uh, really give you, I've got lots and lots of uh, comments on the book, which are mostly very positive. I've been uh, reading this book through the December break, Um, but uh, as a political economist, as somebody who does more economics than politics, my uh, comments would be rather broad, um, I know Hassan uh, would be able to offer uh, more grounded perspectives given his own expertise in political science. Don't apologize for being an excellent economy. work. Okay, so um, I think this book is basically about uh, politics and in conditions of rural inequality and it retrieves the role of the marginal landless voter. So essentially it's also about sort of strategic political participation in rural areas. But more broadly speaking, I think the book offers a fascinating um, sort of view on a, on a long-dere, uh, the question of long delay importance, which is you know, what is the role of historically embedded structural inequality, uh, which is basically a fancy way of talking about the power and dominance of landed elites in Pakistani perspective. And in that regard, there are two sort of polar views Uh, One view is a rather static view that this landed elites continue to dominate. Um, That offers the primary explanation for the political stasis that Pakistan has experienced. Um, There's a variant of that uh, view which is uh, relevant in public discussions which is on dynastic politics. The second view is that actually the role of landed elites uh, uh, is actually declined in, in, in politics. And it's no longer the primary explanation for political development. In my view, both of these are oversimplified views. Uh, the first one is particularly static, that it's just landed power that explains everything. Um, and I think this disjunction between these two polar views partly emanates uh, from the failure of some of their proponents to take into account variation, both longitudinal, how things have changed over time, but also spatial and also because of their excessive focus on macro political outcomes. You know, a lot of this literature talk about talks about landed candidates, constituencies, and their broad interaction with dependent voters. And the principal contribution of Shandana's uh, book is to sort of offer a very empirically rich and theoretically grounded view that you know, engages with all these competing explanations around the uh, role of baradaries, clientelism, feudal explanation, um, and then tries to bridge this divide, but actually unpacking all three categories, landed power, the categories of actors, voters. Um, and in, in, in doing so, sort of unpacks politics and inequality altogether, and offers us a very sophisticated, nuanced view in which the role of structural inequality and landed power still plays an important role. It's a persistent concern. But it it has a more it takes a more nuanced background role in the surrounding institutional environment where voters are still can use their political agency under conditions of political competition and so i think in that regard the principal contribution of this book is to sort of retrieve the agency of the politics of this marginalized landless voter and it does so by actually bringing in um, you know, both micro, meso and macro aspects in the sense that, you know, it, she's, she's talking about, um, you know, villages, and I think village is the right unit here, but also voting blocks, which is the sort of intermediate uh, level uh, in terms of constituency politics. Uh, and that's a very important contribution to sort of theorizing and then empirically furnishing evidence on the role of voting blocks. Um, in terms of methods, the book offers a great, um, Sort of example for a lot of our social scientists, how you can combine survey, archival evidence with multiple regressions. Um, I also agree with its focus on Central Punjab because, uh, you know, often in Pakistan we have these sort of broad divisions between, you know, sort of South Punjab and Sindh being so different from North and Central Punjab. But actually, Central Punjab is a lot more variation, and some of the earlier work by Ali Chima yeah. showed that there's huge variation in poverty development outcomes. Some of the central Punjab villages are similar in terms of the inequality, um, uh, landed inequality, adverse development outcomes with, with regions in, in, in South Punjab. Um, so I think that's that's a great uh, effort, and it also bridges a divide between political scientists and economists. You know, provided did I say a domain to think about both? Now, I'm going to raise a couple of questions, which is really to, Broaden the envelope, to open the envelope for further conversation. And one question that, uh, in a sense, Shalini, uh. with her introduction, is the question of external validity. And uh, obviously, she looks at you know um, Saival and Chuck. One extends the analysis to other villages, and then looks at external validity within the district. In other words, looking at how this analysis applies to villages that are not directly covered but within the same district. Um, But I think the next stage of research, especially for a lot of students who are at applied at Kaidism University, at Lums, is to look at how this analysis can be extended. What is its external validity in other regions? And this is particularly important because one of the principal sources of variation Shandana employs is a sort of difference between colony and crown villages, which is not prevalent in every district uh, of Punjab. Uh, but there might indeed be other sources of similar proprietary differences um, uh, that she also mentions in in, in her work. Two other related, uh, you know, some other related questions on this is the sort of uh, stability of vote banks, uh, the vote blocks. I mean, we know there are vote blocks within villages. People tend to vote together in in terms of those blocks. Um, But in recent years, we've seen that there are emerging trends that could change the nature of strategic bargaining which is not just strategic bargaining over mutually bound, binding, reciprocal, clientelistic engagements, but also on demographics. You know, uh, I see, for example, in my own village in, in central Punjab, uh, in North Punjab actually, where you know, the demographics are playing a very important role. In the same household, uh, different um, you know, youth age groups, members of age groups, you know, older people and younger people are voting very differently in the same village. Um, Access to media and higher education has changed that as well. So although Shandana recognizes that these vote blocks are not necessarily stable, one interesting future line of inquiry is to kind of look at how these other influences such as demographics and access to media uh, are making these vote blocks more unstable. The other aspect is to do with how um, voters connect, not just with the leaders of the vote blocks, but also the candidates. So what is the relationship? Between those who manage village-level vote blocks with candidates, and what's the role of political parties in in blocking strategic bargaining, in the sense that political parties have a huge stake in who they select as electoral candidates, um, and, and then they sort of indirectly govern this nature of relationship. Yet another line of inquiry for future is to sort of hydrology. Uh, which is hugely important in Punjab's context. Shantana recognizes it herself, her distinction between colony villages and and crown villages itself, sort of implicitly governed by by hydrology and canal colonization. But the patterns, you know, hydrology can be important in terms of, you know, the Barani areas uh, um, could have very different types of mechanisms of control for these elites and landed elites could play much less important role uh, they might have lost a lot more power in those regions. Uh, and then of course, some of the work that I've done myself, which Chindana' um, is aware of is on religion. you know, a lot of these intersecting vote blocks exist because um, there is the power of the P, the power of the uh, the great Sufi saints who uh, control large part of politics and they have vote blocks in different constituencies, including um, the region which she studies. I mean, um, uh, we, we all know in this region, uh, Sial Sharif and a lot of other Gaddis play an important role. How does that intersect with uh, this is, is important. Now, I would like to conclude by really drawing out a uh, placing this work, which is very empirically refined, fine grained work, in sort of larger debates on um, institutions. And there, I think one key theoretical significance of this work is that when scholars look at formal models of non-democratic politics. Right, There are a lot of non-democracies where politics plays a very important role. And Barbara Geddes definition uh, of uh, regime types would include Pakistan as a non-democracy as well. I mean, we have continuing elections, but we have uh, uh, broader, broadly speaking sort of non-democratic polity. And there we think about institutional analysis in two ways. One is the sort of more equilibrium consequences of institutions, right? So there we take institutions are given, and we examine how incentives that are created by these institutions shape the behavior of participants. So if you were to think about Shandana's project, it's really about the power of landed elite itself as an institution. You take it as given, and how does that create incentives for behavior of participants? And the second view is more as institutions as equilibria which is to say that the emergence and persistence of institutions are outcomes, are equilibrium outcomes of strategic interaction, right? And I think that's the view where Shandana's work more clearly fits in because it sort of retrieves the agency of the voter in that. Um, uh, that I think is is an interesting way to frame uh, some of the, the findings. Another important framing uh, relates to sort of work that Asimogru and Robinson have carried out. Uh, and um, and in this work, I think a lot of emphasis has been on persistence. You know, persistence of weak outcomes, persistence of historically determined uh, features um, that could have consequences of, for long run development. But a lot of this critique of path dependence, um, which Asimoglu and Robinson have themselves carried out, is that we don't know how do we explain continuity in the midst of change, right? And so. Again, Shandana's work tells us that actually, Ali Chima's work on Crown Villages, which tells us that over the 100 year period, there's lower development. That's, that's a big fact of continuity. But that continuity exists in the midst of change, right? And that's the element that Shandana is bringing out. And in doing that, she's also providing us an interesting perspective on not just how things persist, but what are the mechanisms of persistence? You know, If you are a landed elite, Survival is not automatic for you. You have to work hard, you have to be dynamic, you have to engage in the midst of uh, intensive political competition. And thirdly, a recent strand of literature's argued that actually persistence itself could be time-varying in the sense that the impact of history remains latent for a long time, but becomes salient over time. Conversely, persistence can be ruptured, there could be dislocation of power, and Mavish Shami's work tells us that this dislocation can occur in regions that have better access to infrastructure. And again, that's where Shandana's study makes a larger theoretical uh, contribution. The third dimension is the sort of more broader literature on inequality, politics, and redistribution, because much of political science literature uh, considers inequality in politics um, it, together with the question of redistribution. And I think that's where future work, including Chandana's own work, can shed light on what's the role of this sort of redistribution of public goods within this picture? How does that differ across these different villages? Some of those answers are provided, but I think the role of redistribution uh, can be fundamentally reconnected within that larger debate. And to conclude, I think there's also a policy, there's also a major takeaway for policy in Chandana's um, in work In the Pakistani context, there's always been a narrative that has discredited politics. And that clearly serves certain constituencies. Uh, But what Chandana's work tells us is that there's premium on continuity. There are spaces of political engagement, even under conditions of structural inequality, which tells us that there's a premium on continuity. There's another takeaway of Chandana's work for political parties, because work tells us that how these um, sort of voting vote blocks are imperfectly connected with political parties. Politically par- political parties are imperfectly penetrated uh, uh, in terms of their access and uh, contact with rural voters. And unless they develop that sort of grassroots presence, um, it's going to be very difficult um, to 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 think about um, uh, sort of long term political change. And finally, the point that that um, she's already alluded to, is the, is, is the important point about local. Um, and so I think in that regard, it's clear that Shandana is telling us that, look, we don't have to exist in a world of binaries where either land elite matters or not. Either democracy is possible with structural inequality or not. There is an empirically rich domain that tells us that we can create new spaces of engagement within this context of high rural structural inequality, much of it is historically embedded. So overall, all praise uh, for Shandana's work, and I sincerely believe that this is the first seminal contribution in terms of political science work. We've had great work by uh, 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 Dr. Vaseem, uh, by a whole range of political scientists that, as she's mentioned herself, people who've done more anthropological perspective like Sagan and others, Hamza alavi um, um, and more recently Martin, but I think this is the first social, scientific, rigorous uh, political science study that will set the stage for um, uh, uh, for much of political science work in years and decades to come. I'll conclude there.
3: Thank you, Adil, thank you, good
0: comments. Let me move on to Hassan Javed, sir.
4: All right, uh, thank you very much. Thank you very much for including me in this discussion. Um, I, When I first read this book, I, I was very pleased to, to see it come out because as Shindana mentioned at the start of her talk, I was involved in a small way from the very beginning. And in, in many ways, my own trajectory has been very influenced by the work I initially did with Shindana in Sergota many, many uh, years ago. And it was just great to see all of that work finally come together in in what is truly a fantastic book. I mean, I I endorse everything uh, Adil Malik had to say about the contribution this book has made to our understanding of how local politics works in Pakistan. And I'll, I'll just echo something that Shandana herself mentioned as well. I mean, what it really does more than anything else, I think is problematize this very popular idea we have of politics being dominated by feudal elites who exercise complete and total power over passive voters who um, have no choice but to endorse existing structures of power. And what Shandana shows through um, her extensive survey research through the, the, the mixed methods that she employs is that that is not the case. The, the picture of local politics uh, in Punjab at least is, is much more complicated than we often think. And it's, it's not characterized by simple domination or subordination, there's a lot of contestation, there's a lot of negotiation and, and bargaining that's taking place. And in that sense, I also think, and I agree with Abil Malik about this, that it is uh, the, it, it really adds to the work we already had. I mean, there, there's long been a tendency to rely extensively on work done by Hamza Lavish and Al-Raus and others back in the 60s and the 70s when conceptualizing contemporary politics and in, in in Punjab and in Pakistan. And I think this is really, I mean, the most comprehensive study of its kind to emerged since then. So I think the book deserves all the praise uh, that it has gotten so far. Now, um, what I'd like to do actually is just bring up a couple of um, points for discussion, right? I mean, some of this is mentioned in the book already. Some of these points are in the book already. And what I'd like Shandana to do if possible is perhaps Elaborate on some of those themes, if if time permits. Um, and like Shinada, my concern, as far as this book is concerned, is with the prospects, or rather, the implications for democratization that the processes she describes have. To what extent do they represent uh, a move towards more substantive democratization? So, before I get into my points, let me just kind of put. Uh, put put forward what I think might be, and maybe Shindana would disagree, but what I think might be an accurate description of the system that she ultimately describes uh, in the book. And putting to one side obviously the variations that exist, I would argue that what the book shows us is a system that continues to be characterized by the dominance of local leaders, many of whom tend to be landowning or from landowning families, who become the focal point of vote blocks by virtue of their ability to act as conduits to state patronage due to their economic power, their connections to, their, to the state, and linkages with candidates and political parties. Right? Now, many of these leaders um, started out as landlords. Some have become landlords over time, others have emerged by virtue of their employment within the government or by virtue of their exploitation or ability to exploit alternative economic opportunities. At the same time, we have evidence of increased bargaining by those collective groups, sometimes sometimes organized along kinship lines. With this bargaining increasing over time as a result of broader processes of socioeconomic change that have seen the decline of ties of economic dependence, the emergence of middle classes, and the rise of new political entrepreneurs, right? All of this, as Chandana points out, seems to suggest that um, local leaders now have, there are more pressures on local leaders to include voters within the decision-making process to, to cater to the needs of voters when it comes to service provision. In a sense, the emergence of more leaders has led to more competition. Now, I think that's a fair depiction of what's going on in Punjab. I think there might be reason, at least in my mind, to be skeptical about the extent to which this might lead to more substantive democratization. So I have a few points. I list them in order, be relatively quick about it, and then hopefully we can have a broader discussion about this. First of all, I I wanted to echo a point that was made by Abil Malik about institutions and persistence. And one of the points that Shanana makes in the book is that a lot of these changes are being driven by electoral competition, right? A lot of the kind of um, uh, need to include voters and uh, th- this rise in bargaining is happening as a result of electoral pro- pressures. But is that the case? Or can we explain a lot of this version to the different tenorial arrangements that were put in place by colonialism? After all, the comparison between these kind of canal villages, canal colony villages, and landlord dominated villages is one that is ultimately a comparison between villages that had one or maybe two dominant leaders and villages that had multiple leaders. And in a sense, what we might be seeing is competition that's kind of continues to be constrained by that institutional arrangement rather than something that's been driven by elections. Elections may have exacerbated those competitive pressures, but may not have created those competitive pressures. I think this might be interesting to think about because ultimately what implications does that then have for villages that don't have a multiplicity of leaders or where the opportunities for new leaders to emerge might be relatively constrained. Um, And there's another level to this as well. I mean, and this is something I look at in my own work, which is that ultimately also we have to remember that um, a lot of uh, this election, uh, electoral competition is constrained by broader legislative processes, right? legal processes. right? I mean, one of the mechanisms through which these institutions persist is also through the creation of rules that constrain politics in particular ways. And so what I'm arguing, in a sense, is that perhaps this persistence is even deeper than we might initially kind of think that um, the the prospects for competition remain relatively limited. That's my first point. My second point, now I know Ximdana explicitly doesn't want to talk about political parties and I think that makes a lot of sense. I think a study of this kind is extremely important precisely because we honestly until this point haven't really learned much about vote box or haven't seen much about local village dynamics. But I do think it's important to bring parties back into the mix at some level. Now, wh- one of the things I wanted to kind of highlight, perhaps, was the fact that, in a sense, the mode of politics remains the same, right? The mode of politics remains one that's centered around individuals, whether they're leaders or candidates, who are able to mobilize voters on, base- on, on the basis of their ability to forge alliances and make promises of patronage to potential clients. Parties, appear to play a minimal role in the actual business of electioneering. More often than not, they're simply platforms uh, that provide as those aspiring for public office with the means to which to gain formal access to state patronage,
0: mm.
4: right? I mean, after all, for instance, election campaigns aren't funded by political parties. Candidates aren't necessarily supported by political parties in any meaningful ways. It remains an incredibly candidate and leader-centric uh, form of political contestation. And um, this is obviously made, exacerbated, this tendency is exacerbated by the fact that parties continue to compete with each other to uh, capture or to rather co opt local electables, local vote leaders, and so on, relying on them to mobilize votes rather than on more programmatic appeals or ideological appeals uh, to voters directly, or indeed on party machines that might be able to mobilize voters. So while voters may have more bargaining powers when it comes to their potential brokers or patrons the nature of service provision hasn't really changed in any substantive way we haven't really seen the emergence of the kind of programmatic politics that you might expect with this kind of broadening of electoral competition. It's still very much a patronage based system and arguably what might be happening is that you might be swapping one set of elites for another, traditional landlords for new political entrepreneurs. And you might be increasing the amount of provision voters can bargain for, but ultimately remains a system centered around patronage rather than programmatic politics. And so it'd be interesting to see whether or not that will remain the case, what, again, the, the, the proclivities for change might be in, in this entire context. The third point I wanted to raise is about something, it kind of tied, it's tied to the point of Il-Malik was making about agency and the way in which your book talks about the agency of the voter. And what it remind, when I was reading your book, it reminded me of a point of what David Gilmartin called the paradox of patronage and people sovereignty. The fact that Patronage might, patronage-based systems might be seen as legitimate by voters, right? That there may not necessarily be a demand for more substantive democratization, with all the implications that might have. After all, uh, it's not necess- uh, if the aim of governance is to improve or increase service provision. This does not necessarily require more democratization. We have evidence of this from. Not just from non-democratic regimes, but also from democratic regimes with dominant party systems or single party systems. I mean, it's not necessarily the case that you need greater participation or representation to increase service provision. I'm not saying I endorse that point, but certainly that point can be made. And so um, the our, the point to be made is that um, if shifts in political engagement are facilitated by external actors or parties, and I believe that's a point that you make in your in the book as well, there's little evidence to suggest that that kind of external kind of influence currently exists within Pakistan itself. Right, and there's various historical reasons for that, including repression and the and the influence of the military. But if that is the case, again, where will where does change necessarily come from? Where does the pressure for more uh, kind of democratic politics come from. And if Asim Sajad's is correct in suggesting that the elite dominated and authoritarian system in Pakistan is, has led to the emergence of a politics of common sense, which leads voters to legitimize and internalize uh, patronage politics and what might drive candidates and leaders also to embrace more democratic politics. Fourth, um, there's this point that the book makes. Now, and I'd really like to hear more about this, about the tensions that exist between brokers and between parties, right? And um, it's it's certainly, it's tempting to believe that the tensions that exist between brokers and parties might lead parties to seek alternative independent sources of support outside of these traditional party networks. But on the other hand, I'll pose a kind of counterfactual. It's also possible that parties could respond to this by centralizing more power in their own hands. And that's certainly what I would argue has been happening over the past 10 years, uh, particularly in Punjab where the, for instance, the Muslim League's local government law actually reduced the amount of power in the hands of local (laughs) representatives. The PTI passed a more progressive local government law that has yet to enact it. uh, Successive governments have now um, banned constituency development funds. All of this could be interpreted as an attempt to actually exercise greater control over brokers, thereby creating a situation where parties continue to rely on brokers to mobilize votes, but more tightly regulate their ability to access and dispense patronage. And so again, I'd, I'd like to hear if you have anything to say about that potential possibility, again, within the context of the Punjab system. Finally, um, the last point I'd, I'd like to make is about political opportunities. And again, this is something that came up a couple of times in the book as well. And I'd just like to hear more about it. So I I wonder, again, what the prospects might be for the mobilization of vote blocks around lower castes and and subordinate class groups. Like for instance, in the book, you talk about Muslim sheikhs, you talk about how the Muslim sheikh vote is often split and how that's often a kind of strategic decision that is made in order to maximize uh, potential benefits that might accrue to that entire group. But yet, um, what prevents political entrepreneurs or indeed parties from tapping into these potential constituencies using the idiom of class or using the idiom of caste? I mean, if we, uh, I would imagine about 15% of every village is home to, uh, is, is Muslim sheikh, for instance, that's a significant constituency. So what's preventing parties or local political entrepreneurs from mobilizing along those lines, especially in villages where there's a higher degree of lower caste autonomy. Mm. Building on that point, uh, to what extent would you think it's fair to say that the emphasis on and kinship as an idiom for collective action, as opposed to class or ideology, might have to do with the efforts of local leaders to maintain that form of politics and to kind of emphasize that identity as opposed to other alternatives? Last thing I want to say is something you've mentioned yourself, I'd just like to hear more about it, is about, uh, as you know, the book focuses on vote blocks Mm. and local politics. I think it's very necessary to do that. It's certainly different from focusing on states and parties and so on and so forth. But we need to go even deeper. And this is a point that Malik was making as well. It, It would be great to hear more about how women vote and how young people vote, and in a sense, start to unpack the black box of household voting and this assumption that because the head of the household votes a certain way, everyone else is going to vote that way as well. So any thoughts you might have about that? That's all. I'm going to stop there. But again, fantastic book. It was a pleasure to read it. I look forward to hearing what you what more you might have to say. Thank you, Hassan.
0: Very good comments, very good comments indeed. Uh, so there you go, Shandana. You got a comment from Malik. And I don't know where which caste the wheel falls into, but certainly we have got a landlord who's commented on you before. Okay, let's go to the, the Muslim sheikhs now. Dr. Khalid from
5: P. I. D. Please. Uh, thank you very much, sir. Uh, and uh, after an excellent presentation from uh, Dr. Shandana, then followed by Dr. Adil and Hassan, Uh it really leaves not many points to be discussed. But still, I'll give my two cents to it. Uh, First of all, I would like to congratulate Dr. Shandana on presenting an excellent work. And it seems that it's a kind of a passion uh, which she has transcribed in the form of her writing. And it's not as she has also mentioned, it's a teamwork and she has acknowledged it in her book as well. So it's a very uh, delightful read. Um, So uh, I'll directly go towards what my uh, picks are from the book. Uh, The first thing is that... uh, author has really uh, identified such a a misnorm which generally is presented towards uh, how the electoral processes works and it, it seemed very casual that it's the feudalistic kind of a society, uh, but she has broken this uh, from the academic uh, perspective and it has become more critical and dynamic in terms of understanding. So rather than following the norm of focusing only on the oligarchs of the society, she has also been able to identify the other side of this coin or the debate, where which was not that much weighted uh, when we talk about uh, the strategic behaviors of the uh, voters. Uh, She has uh, picked the uh, public choice framework to dispel the notion that these oligarchs established by our colonial masters for their own terms of engagement with locals still hold power uh, to dictate across uh, the whole of rural Pakistan, or at least uh, it has weakened over time due to a number of socioeconomic factors and uh, the creation of the brokerage in uh, all this uh, process. Uh, This book initially seemed enigmatic when we read it uh, because it starts with the concept of marginalized uh, uh, citizens, uh, citizen voters uh, with an extreme kind of um, socioeconomic inequality. But at the end of it, there is a ray of hope because we see that the voters have broken their myopic lens and uh, the landed elite themselves have also been mastering their uh, uh, constituencies presenting themselves as the elders rather than the um, uh, masters, along with new power brokers, namely the voting blocks leaders. Uh, our political process is still deep-rooted from the uh, findings of the study that there is still some path dependence in one form or other, especially the um, you know, voting bloc leaders also kind of profile in the same manners which the earlier oligarchs were, basically. Uh, The results which has been presented uh, in the book are generalizable across all because it presents a kind of a taxonomy um, which can be applied with a little bit of twist. For example, when we go to the Botoar region or the KPKs where the uh, landed elites are not that much present, but there are other forms of elitism which can basically replace this type of clientelism. Uh, and that can basically help us in terms of understanding how the uh, voters have been strategically behaved, especially in the KPK, since we have seen that there are uh, major... Uh, reshuffles in terms of uh, who is being elected, so we can basically learn from that. And that is also uh, noted by other authors also. For example, a recent work of Lyakat et al. has identified that uh, the voters are looking forward towards those politicians which are connected even with bureaucracy or the upper tiers of the governments which are going to be the uh, first choice which they are going to make. Now coming to certain issues which I would like some uh, what clarity, uh, in table 6.7 uh, the, uh, the reasons have been identified for uh, the type of uh, uh, blocks which would be developed, but I, I, I was just thinking that can uh, really, they are mutually exclusive because uh, there they can be certain overlaps between them, uh, rather than putting them in, uh, in an independent form, because uh, maybe the Uh, There is a kind of a kinship, but at the same time, they're looking forward in terms of better service quality from a specific type of um, choice which the people are making. The second question which comes in in my mind is, uh, and which has also been uh, just discussed, is uh, the uh, role of particular um, uh, knowledge or the uh, voter uh, education in terms of picking the right person, especially as you have mentioned also that um, there are uh, family voting concepts, basically. The household head, especially the earning male, whatever he dictates is going to be the outcome. So what do you think that in future if the uh, if there is a um, kind of a voter education campaign or uh, because of the linkage uh, with the nearing urban centers, the voters really come to an understanding of how they can make better choices and uh, going in future have a better electoral process. The last thing is uh, that uh, which I would like to uh, learn from more from you is uh, that uh, what type of um, uh, service requirements or the um, preferences which the voters have been presenting over time because from your book it again appears that it's the same thana, kacheri, and very basic kinds of elements and the voters are not really coming out of this uh, issue and uh, even from all tiers of the uh, governments they are again, looking for the same kind of service rather than looking forward for more progressive kind of things. So do you think that there is really a need of uh, educating the voters also in terms of what really they need to have from uh, these electoral representatives? Again, in the end, I would like to congratulate. It's an excellent piece of work. And uh, hopefully uh, this work would uh, go on because again, as I said, that seems the passion of yours. So I congratulate you and your team again. Thank you.
0: Thank you, Khalid. Shandana, it's a compliment to your book that we've got too many discussions, but that places a load on you. So, nevertheless, we'll go to Lubna, Dr. Lubna Hassan from Pait. Lubna? Uh,
5: Sir, Dr. Lubna is just connected due to some technical issue. Okay,
0: okay, fair enough, no problem. Then, Shandana, back to you uh, to take up. Uh, Very interesting observations and comments. I found that very interesting. Certainly enlighten your book a lot more. And people, please raise your hands if you want to be included after Shandana answers the question. So hands, please. Shandana, over to you.
1: Likewise, um, Nadeem, that was, that was fantastic. I really enjoyed all of uh, just listening to all of those comments and really trying to understand what is it that speaks most to those that read it and I see lots of hands already going up so I'm, can you tell me how long I have because I really want to hear what people have to say about this, how long should I speak?
0: Uh, Take your time, you know, you know how to be possible. (laughs) (laughs) No problem.
1: (laughs) That's exactly what I'm going to do. Um, excellent points, um, Adil and Hassan and Mehmood Sab. And I I would um, really like to be able to discuss these with you in much more detail at some later point. So I'm going to pick on a few of the things that you've said and that are sort of common. And the the, the questions that I do get very often is what is the big picture on all of this and where is it going and what are the implications for democracy and has it really changed? And what is it that's really changed? And um, Hassan's question was what on what is preventing political parties from connecting? Is my question to political parties as well? Um, and I'm hoping that by you know if by some chance they end up reading this, they will ask themselves the same question. Is what we're trying to show is there is a constituency, and there is con- and this is a very dynamic space, and there is a lot of tension between voters and brokers, uh, there are leaders, and between brokers and political parties. And this isn't just a Pakistan specific phenomena. Susan Stokes work on this with her colleagues in four different countries has, show, has established in her uh, book exactly this point is that this is never a static relationship. The, the, the level of tension and the level of distrust is high enough to make sure that there is a constant um, um change within these political uh, within these uh, political dharas And I mentioned towards the end of the book the fact that essentially what comes through in all of the analysis is the fact that an ideal relationship, even from the point of view of voters, would be to eventually connect to a political party. Um, And nobody's really enjoying, seems to be enjoying the relationship of this intermediary in the middle. Um, But I think a lot of it is the lack of political institutions. So it's these squandered opportunities over the, the, the survival politics that parties play in Pakistan, over the lack of the institutionalization of local government um, over the fact that the attention of political parties doesn't turn to the creation of political constituencies and it remains on um, sort of um, you know um, partisan politics as well as a struggle against um, other institutions Um, and that's essentially the question of the book is there is a constituency the constituency is looking for a linkage there are changes and all of these changes have been made possible by um, electoral politics by the expansion of towns by the expansion of other kinds of um, non land non-farm-based um, employment opportunities, by the shrinkage of, of land. And all of this means that a different kind of politics is possible and that politics plays a big role. Um, the political parties play a big role in that and sort of connecting what you said, Hassan, to a particular visit of ours to a question that Adil asked about the um, the role of politics and the peers in particular. So Hassan and I arrived in this one village one day at a time when there was a real struggle with the peer of um, Seyal about this one candidate that they had realized voters were not going to vote for, that had the support of the peer, that had the support of the ruling party at the time, but that had lost, that the person had lost the support of people um, and was not going to get votes. And then there was this other person, Makan, who was going to get the support, but he didn't have a ticket. And the sort of politics that we observed in that, one week while landlords could not make their decision against what the peer had said Um, and uh, people who who didn't seem to care and who had decided on a different candidate. And all of that politics that got created around how political parties got to call the shots and not the landlords on who was eventually elected, made... Um, Sort of given the support of the political party. These are huge changes. This was not the local political leader calling the shots. This was the party calling the shots, but the party connecting to what voters were saying in calling the shots. And that was that sort of very visible politics of that week um, that we spent in those areas. So I I really appreciate um, Adil's comments, especially around what um, around um, sort of where this work can go and what the theoretical implications are. The way I see it is that I'm I'm hoping that I've placed voters quite centrally on our political spectrum in terms of, on our political agenda. And I've helped create some of the concepts and measures that are very useful in the Pakistani context. And um, as um, uh, Mehmoud said, I think what is exter- um, um, externally valid about this, may not be all of the politics that I'm describing in the book, but is that typology of voters. And that's something you picked up on right at the end, um, uh, Memu Khalid, and hmm. that is uh, that I think is extendable. How many clients do you see in each village? How many are classified? classifiable as dependence how many are really doing this politics of kin and mm. it is that two-step process it is not the politics of kinship it is mobilizing on the basis of kinship but then connecting upwards on the basis of clientelism which is why I said that the perspective matters so much are you looking at this downwards from the perspective of landlords and are you talking to landlords or are you really able to see this as voters see it in which case there's a lot of um, political action and a lot of political um, strategizing that goes into this so if we stick with that idea Idea of the fact that political parties and its actors have become important, and both voters and landlords are looking to the political party, um, and it's really, um, and if we stick to the idea that there is a real transition politics happening, um, then it, our attention can easily change to um, the the weakness of institutions and political institutions that can help develop this kind of politics. So I'm going to stop there not because uh, I don't want to do a lot of your other points which is I really want to get into that conversation but there are so many hands popping up that are visible to me and I really want to hear what they have to say as well but thank you so much for your comments um, and also just to very quickly add your comments on um, different types of voters in urban areas and women voters is absolutely valid. We had a hard time getting them to speak differently from the men, not separately, but differently and saying that they had a separate politics of their own. But together with Sara Khan, Ali Chima, Asad Layakut, we are now looking at exactly that. And that's our next paper that should be fingers crossed out soon on how to mobilize voters and especially women voters. Um, And also what is it that matters for the mobilization of voters? And it's not so much just education, it is structural change, it is connections. And in rural areas, the thing that's going to make a difference is making sure that services are given rega- without having to have intermediaries and <clears throat> without having to constituency development funds, but just universal delivery. And that's when politics is going to look different. So it's not about education as much as it is about the mode of mobilization, why it happens, and what are the structural changes that will change that mode of mobilization.
0: Okay, thank you, Shandana. I'll uh, collect the questions and come back to you. So take your notes. Okay, great. Iram Heather. Dr. Iram Heather from Worcester, Ohio, I
6: think. Iram, are you there? Hey, I'm here. I'm sorry, can you hear me? I, I, ah, I think I was having okay. some trouble. Um, hi, Shandana. Um, you know, absolutely fabulous book. Uh, in fact, uh, coincidentally, I just finished reviewing it for Commonwealth and Comparative Politics. So, inshallah, that should be out soon. And I, and I really, I, you know, I put it in conversation with um, Dr. Arsam Sajad's book as well. And I'm so glad hassan brought that up because, to me, the thing that really stood out is that we seem to be in this tension between making some kind of progress with the kind of the material changes that have happened in the Punjab over land, sort of land holdings. Uh, And also remittances, I think, was the other big point that, you know, Asim had is that remittance money coming in has made middle class voters shift away to some extent from the feudal or, or needing sort of feudal patronage in quite the same way. And your book also speaks to how when... You know, there's not this trifecta of social and economic and political power held by the feudal, then there is some kind of counterbalance that can happen with another entity in the same constituency. So there can be these, if there's an economic locus of power that shifts somehow away from agricultural, large agricultural land ownings. So the question really is, you know, what potential do we see for more fragmentation or more sort of change in the material conditions in in Punjab, not just the rural Punjab, but also sort of semi-urban Punjab, that would lead to sort of meaningful competition, and that's really what your book, at least to me, speaks to is the idea of meaningful competition for voters to actually have choice between who they can uh, choose to vote for, um, and to really and so you know so now this this work is kind of coming into you know 2021. What do you see as the big shifts in economic power that could potentially lead to this kind of change. I'd be really interested in knowing, but fantastic work overall, and you know, congratulations many times over. Thank you.
0: Thank you. Alia Khan.
7: Ji, <clears throat> uh, thank you. Uh, Shandana, it was a pleasure uh, to uh, hear your work being presented. I'm Sara's mother. uh, So I'd known about this uh, work (laughs) for a while. Um, My question is, and I hope I can frame it uh, properly. um, What is your impression about whether voters learn from their relationship in a clientelistic Uh, manner uh, the you know the patronage relationship that you talked about from the role of uh, their uh, representatives whom they've voted for in getting them their uh, desired services by their role in the parliaments I mean I know maybe uh, it's it's a Two-part question, but uh, now with the social media and um, you know other communication technologies, where uh, parliamentary sessions uh, uh, proceedings are also uh, brought to the knowledge of uh, you know the rural population, they do have a fair idea of how their c- candidate that they voted for is doing. So do you think that over the time period that you studied, there has been a change in voter preferences um, because of that? Thank you.
0: Thank you, Alia, thank you. Arslan Ahmed?
8: Arsalan as, as-, as- al- 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 First of all, I want to congratulate author on an uh, incredible uh, piece of uh, information that she just shared for, with us. Um, I am basically uh, uh, part of PTI media team and I generally mm. am involved with the central party leadership uh, with regards to a lot of activities that they do. And I find this research very interesting uh, with regards to how the political parties can learn from a lot of things, especially with regards to how they can look into different areas, uh, how the, the land situation is, how the voter situation is. But unfortunately, I do want to highlight a few things, uh, even as part of uh, ruling party uh, central uh, department and central leadership group, uh, which is led by the chief organizer Saifullah Khan Niyazi, these days, mm-hmm. I find that uh, there are a lot of problems that exist internally for political parties, even to look out for those things. For instance, the way uh, tickets are distributed, the way power structures are within the parties and the way... Um, you know, even if the, the way these senate elections are coming, and the way tickets process is happening, or these type of type of power structures, which I think I would love to hear uh, the authors view that how the political parties can balance out those realities, how they can work on the structural changes before uh, we look at how we can possibly bring the impact. Uh, you know, with regards to mobilization of voters. With regards to a lot of structural changes that are needed on the land aspect and the, you know, overall the the, uh, systems that we, uh, that the author has spoken about. So that's my, and I, once again, I want to congratulate the writer on writing this book. Thank you.
0: Thank you, Arsalan. Shaheen and Nisar. Have you lost Shahina? Shahina?
3: I think we've lost her. Idris yeah. Khaja? I'm here. Oh. I'm here. Hello. Hello. It's, I think it's a very good book that has um, you know, that has led to such a, a debate. And you know, I have also enjoyed the comments because um, I've been listening to you very carefully. Um, I, I think my comments would be more like a suggestion for the future because I would like to have a more forward-looking approach towards the politics in Pakistan because um, I had some um, in the past, a few years back when I was looking at some governance aspects, I looked into Sergoda and I thought that you know, they had good data over there and you know uh, the budgets were well-defined uh, at the local government level. Um, but in other places, they were not. So, um, so there are disparities, I mean, my view would be totally, I mean, not totally, but you know, I would try to integrate with the social and political aspects, but I'm an economist. So my question is that, you know, um, I would not consider this study as a representative of, uh, of the whole Pakistan, because it's a sample on, uh, of Sergoda, where, you know, you have the landed class, I know the regions in the Northern Punjab where there are landed classes, but most of them are serving you know, here and there or in the military. Um, and then you know, there's much, not much interest and there's no entrepreneurship uh, taking place in those rural villages. So the dynamics are totally different in those villages. And so we need to find out how much population you know, to start a study with the with the representative, you know, like a like a stratification of data for uh, for the villages and see across and see what patterns we have. And you know, these villages these villages in the northern Punjab, for example, which are, I mean, as Adil Malik said, you know, depend on hydrology, and you know, they are Barani areas and people are serving in the military and all that. So there's not much entrepreneurship. So the the voting pattern would be very different and people are also migrating to urban areas. I won't be long, but there's another important con- point I want to make and you are definitely going ahead with the urban study too. Uh, I would suggest that if you could please take the view where urban versus rural dynamics are playing a role in migration, and how it is setting the pattern for uh, for voting, because you have sixty five, um, uh, you know, there sixty five percent of the youth in Pakistan, and then you are also promising internet. In the villages. So there, that's going to be another dynamic factor which may affect the voting system. And if the voting becomes through internet or something, you know, then it becomes a totally different um, ballgame um, in many ways. Um, thank you very much and um, hope to hear from you.
0: Thank you, Shaina. Thank you. Thank you very much.
2: I just wanted to ask uh, what uh, Shahina said in the last about
0: migration. Uh, Idris please speak louder. Come closer to the mic. I
2: just wanted to ask about migration. This migration makes a difference, especially if uh, those in the villages are receiving remittances. Hmm. And um, what about the educational profile of those who are going to the landlord to make voting decisions? Hmm. These are the two questions.
0: Okay, great. Shahina, Uh, I'm sorry, Shandana, let's go back to you. You can take up these questions and then-
1: Okay, and I'm going to do that um, without getting into too much detail. So hopefully you'll forgive me for that, but these are excellent questions and I do want to deal with each one, starting with um, Irams. Iram, I think economic changes are important, but for Pakistan, I think the thing that will really create meaningful competition is something that Hassan mentioned earlier as well, is what is it that will take us from this mode of politics, where we've seen quite a lot of change, and that's what I'm documenting in the book, but I think that change has its limits, as Adil and Hassan have rightly picked up on, beyond this, something else has got to give, and something, there has to be a different kind of politics, and So to me, that kind of politics gets created on the move towards programmatic politics. But programmatic politics is a way down the path that we're traveling um, along, not to imply at all that this is linear in any sense, but the idea is what's going to bring you to programmatic politics. The first step on that is service delivery. You've got to shift the conversation from basic access to something that goes beyond if people are really just wondering about how to do politics so that they can get access to a road that connects their village to um, the highway, um, that's, you know, there's no room over there to start talking about labor policy or education policy. So services have got to become a universal, um, universally delivered good where you don't need to involve all of your politics for us to then start talking about programmatic politics. The basic question of which is, which party's programmatic politics do you prefer? So when we say we want programmatic politics, it's really about party platforms. And party platforms can only matter once your basic services are being delivered in some other form and not through politics. So right now, the politics that we have is not just Thana Kacheri. I think we're a little bit stuck on that. And this is not your point. It's it's an earlier point. Um, It's also the uh, politics of um, the schools running and the health center being provided for and really still um, the the most popular that we've captured is Nali's um, and and Sarkin inside um, the galiya um, um, right so it's the sarak, it's the gully it's the nali that's really sort of still not being delivered so meaningful competition I think is connected to programmatic ideas and that's got to have services working in a different way rather than just the economic shifting I think economics has, has shifted in major ways connected to the last question about migration um, and remittances. I don't get into the the, the channels or tons of remittances in the way that um, sort of Arsene picks up on them in his book. But what I do talk about is what is it that has allowed dependence to reduce in these villages and why is it that we see that 7% figure on dependency voting. And that essentially is the fact that there's money coming in from other sources. And some of it is remittances from Further afield, but a lot of it is just people being able to access employment in nearby towns more easily and being able to move off land to other kinds of industry and sectors. Um, but what they do with that money, what the first thing that you're going to try and do, besides fixing your house, which is sort of the first investment that people will try and do, the pakki chat, the pakki diware, all of that, is try and buy land. So when the landlord starts to sell off little pieces, they're being bought by people that are getting um, money from outside because that ends up affecting your social status. And so the emerging intermediaries that we documented in the book are all people who have managed to start, have now own one acre. Um, or, or in some cases, slightly more very small packets. But they they are now landowners as well in that sense. And this has been recently acquired, which is why it was so important to separate the maliks, those that had land uh, in colonial times, from those that have acquired it as a part of their politics and their emerging status um, within this as well. Um, so the changes that you really um, see is is um, you know sort of related to that, but. Uh, Talking about education again, um, Idris, um, this was your question. Um, 80% in the book, I sort of recall, record this, we don't see much of a difference for education level. 80% of everyone we spoke to are part of dhara politics, And the 20% um, had a slight difference in, in education um, but and were younger, but that's 20% of the full population um, of, of our sample, sorry. And uh, we tried to make sure that was representative, so I'm trying to sort of uh, extrapolate from that, um, but uh, education is, is, it doesn't help differentiate them that much. Um, Alia ji, you know that we're working um, the, to a great extent with urban voters and with women voters now, and a paper that both you and Shaina might be quite interested in that uh, you may have heard we've just submitted um, yesterday is on what we're calling the empty promise of urbanization, and you should be able to read this very soon as an IDS working paper for now, uh, which is on the fact that women vote less in urban areas than in rural areas, and this is a phenomena both in our country and uh, next door in in India as well, is that uh, once you um, are in an urban area, women disengage from politics in a way that um, they don't actually in rural areas. But in rural areas, they're voting as part of a family, as part of this dhara. So there, there's this need to draw votes out. So it brings woman, uh, women out as voters, but not as independent decision makers of who to vote for or what how to strategically use that vote. But in urban areas, they're disconnecting from politics Um, and um, to connect this to a question Arsalan that you asked I've actually followed your party on a mobilization campaign in 2017 for a by-election in Lahore and it was two women candidates and it was all women leaders of the PTI out in full force in these neighborhoods and that's that's not what a mobilization would require in the sense that it's 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 what you would call a registration drive. It's checking on ID cards and making sure that people are able to vote as opposed to what it takes for a mobilization of voters, uh, which is which is a different phenomena of trying to pick up the sorts of issues that would matter for them. It's being able to speak to people who represent um, a more uh, marginalized group of voters. And that's the sort of mobilization that political parties are not taking on. And they don't take it up in urban areas. They don't connect with women and their issues in urban areas is what we're recording in this paper is that women voters vote very differently um, from, um, they don't vote. There's a large gender voting gap in urban areas um, in Pakistan and connecting that to social media. and, And the reason that they mention regularly is that they're invisible to political parties that they feel like invisible citizens. I have a paper on this, it's called Invisible Citizens, um, that talks about uh, the women saying that they don't think political parties, they're not mobilized by political parties, political brokers don't connect with them, they don't figure in the language of political parties. And that's when I decided to follow this campaign to see what was happening. And it isn't a mobilization campaign as you would expect. But connecting that to social media and the role of it. So women in urban areas, um, uh, especially in lower income groups, don't have access. To, um, Facebook accounts, Twitter accounts, um, even WhatsApp. These are controlled by men in the house, so the household has access, but the telephone remains uh, with men. And we get, we asked a lot of women if they had Facebook accounts. We asked about WhatsApp, but these are con- these are these are not accessible by women. They're accessible by men, and then the discussion essentially is um, the the man is the intermediary or the gatekeeper of the information of women that comes into the house. And this is this is also work that we've been doing quite a bit of, um, again, with Sara Khan, with Asad Leakert, and with Ali Chima. So I, I, I'm hoping that that answers the questions um, that you've asked, Shaina. I fully agree with you in being sort of forward-looking, and I'm hoping that all of you at PAID are preparing your students to be able to um, apply these concepts and ideas in other districts and find out what's happening there, and to see how generalizable these ideas really are, and, and on what dimensions does politics change? So if in Bahraini areas, the role of if the landlord is different, then what sustains Dhara politics? Because what we know is that they're not connecting very directly to political parties either, or being mobilized to put it a different way by political parties directly either. So then along which dimensions does politics change when you change the economic and, um, and social structure of a district? So I'll stop there. I'm hoping I haven't missed out on anything here.
0: Nope, I think that's fine. Great, wonderful. One last question, Shandana, before we close. Yeah. Um, I think you've drawn a very interesting and very good um, um, picture of uh, rural Punjab and uh, the relationships between um, various groups. And everybody has been apologizing for being an economist. I will not. (laughs) I think, quite frankly. There is a certain economic story there that you haven't touched upon, and maybe I'd like to get your views on it. We recently had a grand national dialogue series with five or six, um, maybe 20, 30 people, and talked about reform possibilities. The one thing that came out very clearly, um, you talk about it, the the, um, uh, weight of history, you talk about historical inertia, but the one historical inertia that we seem to highlight, we economists, and at least in the PID, or the groups that we had, which you don't bring out is the colonial state, which is Hamzalvi's thesis. That the colonial state still hanging around, and the colonial state is kind of uh, not just the military, but uh, the, the bureaucracy, for example. Uh, I mean, you can't survive in any rural area without the common term patwari, right? So that still exists. So the colonial structure doesn't seem to end up in, in, in your analysis at all. The second thing is that. Um, I mean, given the colonial state, I mean, the common story that we hear, and I think there's some substance to it, that the electables, which is what Imran was looking for, we got the PTI guy here, but Imran eventually had to compromise with the electables. And the electables are your uh, local, whoever, the uh, Madeiras or whatever term you like to use with them. But the electables thrive because of the relationship to the feedback mechanism from the colonial state that, that makes them thrive. For example, very simple, even I as a Pakistani, I can't go anywhere unless I get an attestation from a civil servant. I can't do anything. I can't even bloody well um, you know, buy a, a car without an attestation from a civil servant, right So everything depends there. But the, so the electables thrive on that, and that the electable story is a very important story, but there's a feedback mechanism from there. And the second thing which you emphasize very well, local government, but the electables don't want the local government because it dissipates their power exactly as your analysis. But the thing is that what we asked for was there should be more elections. For example, in the US there's an election every year, in England there's an election every year, local government or this or that, et cetera. There are no elections in Pakistan, once every five years. So what about if there were more elections? that would change. Um, so I think I'd like to, you to reflect on that. How does that impact your analysis and where will you take it further?
1: In terms of, sorry Nadim, what is the question in terms of whether I think more electoral
0: elect- oh, okay. activity? Okay, more- let me reframe. Let How do the rules of the game affect the, what you're studying? The rules of the game are given in colonial times. People are playing the game according to the rules that have been handed down to them in the 1935 constitution the colonial state, the rule, those rules exist, right? So people are maximizing, as an economist, I would say people are maximizing under those rules. So the sheikhs and those guys, et cetera, they're all playing this game. I'm thinking game theory terms, they're all playing this game, given the rules that they face. Nobody wants to change the rules. So yes, they're learning, they'll progress, et etc. Et but unless we change the rules, which is where more elections comes in, which is where other things come in. For example, constituencies. Nobody redesigns the constituencies. Despite censuses, constituencies have not been redesigned. How does that impact your analysis? Supposing we had that push for those things, what would it matter? Oh, it wouldn't matter. Uh,
1: no, but I think it does matter. So. The colonial state and colonial rules of the game is absolutely central to the book in that differentiation between proprietary and crown, which is my main variable, right? Which is, so I say the politics you see today is the impact of institutions put into place by a, by colonial rule a hundred years ago over, at the time when we were observing this about a hundred years ago. And the fact that we see real part dependence on politics, what you're now talking about is the colonial nature of the state as well. And the extent to which um, that plays in this. And that is a good question around what is the face of the state or what is the extent of the state that is visible to a rural voter? And what is it of the state that they see? They see the patwari, they see the local magistrate, they see see the the police officer, they see all of those officers. Um, Beyond that, the state becomes a quite abstract notion to them. And beyond that, it's all about this local politics, and that's the access that they'll get. So it's, it's part of the answer that I gave, I mean, it's essentially the answer that I gave to Iram's question, as well which is it's um, and to Hassan's earlier which is the institutions are what's going to matter it's the institutions that are actually lacking right now to be able to move out of that to be able to see what kinds of democratic institutions are going to work here and I think what I'm trying to say what I've contributed to that in the book is to say that there is a real process of democratization that if we want to observe is observable in rural areas Mm -hmm. the part of the puzzle is missing and that hasn't allowed it to be more than it is, is this lack of institutionalization of of democracy at higher tiers within the bureaucracy, within decision-making processes, within the way parties function and within the way that they're internally organized. In in the point I just made to Arsalan's point about uh, mobilization processes, that's an internal politics. You can play your Senate politics at the national level, but your party's got to have arms to it that are out in the countryside mobilizing voters and mobilizing them around programs conversations of we can change education policy, you will have more schools, you will have more health centers. Um, That kind of institutionalization is important. But the note on which my book ends very strongly is that the politics that will change and that we were able to observe is that of local government. And bringing those institutions closer to the ground, and I think we would be saying something very different if we had actually built on, um, managed to allow these to continue with elections every four years. And absolutely central to the book also, I think I say this very clearly, is that being able to predict an election, knowing that it's coming with some certainty, allows voters to play a very different game. When you don't know when the next election is, it's a different politics. But when you know that there's a moment of accountability coming in four years, in five years, that they're going to have to be sort of, you know, they're going to show up at your door asking for your vote again. And that's going to give you a real moment to change what you're asking for. Um, It changes everything. It's the predictability of the election that has a real force of its own. Um, So I agree, I mean, those are all points that I would absolutely agree to is institutionalization at all levels of democratic practice, especially with a focus on the parts of the state that people in rural areas see. Um, but even as I just said, in urban areas, I don't, we don't see these voters as connecting women at least not as connecting much more, but our, our work on um, the, the paper that I'm actively writing right now is to say that political parties uh, mean a lot more than individual brokers now in urban areas to, um, and, and that the real change in politics has happened in urban Pakistan. Um, and that again is now the bits of it that I'm missing is the fact of this really unstable um, democracy and the unst- instability of democratic institutions in Pakistan.
0: Thank you, Shandana. Thank you very much. I think it's been a wonderful discourse. I think this is an important discourse. We must keep it going. That's why we held the Grand National Dialogue Discussion. That's why we'll have more discussions on this theme. Any other new books, please let us know. We want to bring them in. PAD, Shandana, I'm trying to what we are trying to do is make it into a platform for all Pakistanis. So we are happy to launch all books, all research in PAD, because the job of PAD should be really it's much more like the CEPR in the UK or NBR in and, 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 uh, um, uh, the US we want to become a platform and get Pakistanis to collaborate. We find that Pakistanis are sitting in silos. There's a group here, there's a group there, and they sort of kind of don't talk to each other. Universities don't talk to each other. In Lahore, there are 10 universities, none of them talk to each other. So we're trying to break that barrier and get people to come together. And fortunately, Zoom has given us this opportunity to network all Pakistani intellectuals. So please stay with us. Inshallah, we'll keep doing this. And hopefully we'll be able to pick up build a Pakistani academic community. So Dr. Shandana Mamand, I'm pronouncing it right. I hope. <laughs> yes. right. Dr. Shandana Mamant, thank you very much from the bottom of our hearts. It's a wonderful book and we really enjoyed listening to it and we look forward to your future work. Thank you all, thank you folks. Khuda Hafiz. Thank you
1: so much for the invitation, thank you.